You know, people say time flies, and I now understand that time does not fly. Time goes unrecorded. And so if you don't remember a day, you know, that day doesn't happen. And so we have 365 days in a year, but if you can only remember 60 of them, of course time feels like it flies because you threw away 300 like they were meaningless. You didn't remember one single thing from that day. And when you don't remember one single thing, it's like the day didn't happen anymore. That was Matthew Dix. I'm Rich Polis, and this is the Dad Mindset Show. This episode, storytelling and creativity take center stage. Matthew Dix is a man whose life is as fascinating as his stories. He's not just an award-winning storyteller, but also a best-selling author, teacher, and the artistic director of Speak Up. He has a unique talent for turning everyday moments into captivating tales. In this episode, we dive into the art of storytelling and how useful it is as a parent. So sit back, relax, and get ready to be inspired by the extraordinary Matthew Dix. Matthew Dix, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be here. Now, I've got to say, Matthew, I love audiobooks, but I don't listen to many twice. And as soon as I finished listening to your book, Storyworthy, I started listening to it straight again. It was amazing. That's really kind. <laughs> you have a it, lot of me then. You've heard a lot of me lately. <laughs> <laughs> I have, but I also went straight onto YouTube. Admittedly, we were doing a massive road trip. Um, but yeah, like the, the YouTube stories, uh, the moth stories you've done. Actually, could you just describe what the moth is? Sure. Uh, yeah, that's where I sort of got my start. The moth is a, well, now it's an international organization. They produce story slams in cities all over the world. It's true stories told live on stage without notes, usually about five or six minutes and judged by teams within the audience. And then they produce these main stage shows where a fancier host in a beautiful venue produce stories from you know, around the world. So I went there in 2011 to tell a story and thinking that would be the one and only story I ever tell, sort of on a dare. And now, whatever it is, 12 years later, it's my life. So it's been a been quite a ride. And you almost didn't tell it, didn't you? Right. Yeah. I uh, My name was called 10th. They, they have 10 stories per night. There was about 20 names in the bag that night. So my name came out 10th and I had sort of already decided I don't want to do this anymore. So when they called my name, I sort of froze and realized nobody in the room knows who I am. So if I just sit very still and very quietly, they'll eventually pull another name. But my wife kicked me under the table and said, that's your name. And I said, I know what my name is. I don't want to do this anymore. And she said, you know, get up there and do it. So thank goodness. Yeah. I mean, so how has your life changed then from, like, say, the, the, the year before and where you are now? Oh, well, I mean... So much of my life has changed as a result of telling stories. First, I'm on stages all the time, and that's a wonderful thing to be able to find and tell stories and then share them with audiences is amazing. But a lot of the work I do now is related to storytelling. I'm still an elementary school teacher, but I do a great deal of consulting with businesses and uh, entrepreneurs and priests and ministers and rabbis and doctors and nurses and teachers and professors any kind of person that you could imagine, Olympic athletes, uh, people who have summited Everest, people who want to speak inspirational talks and things like that. I do a great deal of work with them, helping them to tell better stories. Yeah. Uh, But it's fascinating that you 
you've obviously stayed as a, an elementary school teacher with all this extra work that's piled onto you. How have you found that storytelling is sort of fed back into your everyday job? Oh, well, for teaching, I have been telling stories since the first day in my classroom. I've been teaching 25 years now. So there was a time when I was teaching a storytelling workshop and someone in the workshop said, you know, how did you get good at storytelling or how did this happen? And I said, oh, I just sort of stumbled into something I was good at, you know, around the age of 40. How lucky am I? And my wife happened to be in the room that day. And she said, is that really what you think? You think you just stumbled into something you were good at? And I said, well, it's not like I went to college to be a storyteller. You know, and she pointed out, well, you went to be a creative writer and an English major. So that sure helped a lot. And I've been a wedding DJ for about 20 years. So I'm accustomed to standing in front of large groups of people and speaking extemporaneously. So there was no nerves, no fear of the microphone. And she said, you're a teacher. Every day you go in the class and you're known for telling your, your kids stories, and they're the worst audience ever. They're 10-year-olds, so you really have to be good to maintain attention. And I've been writing every day since I was 17. So she said, you know, basically you were doing all the things you needed to do in order to be successful that day you took the stage and told that first story and won your first slam. You know, she said, you've been doing the work for a long time, you just didn't know it. And yeah. she was right, as she usually is. Yeah. Now, I mean, writing every day, that is a really interesting point that came through the book as well, because can you tell me about Homework for Life? Sure. Yeah. So Homework for Life came out of my desire to continue telling stories. You know, I started storytelling and once I fell in love with it that first night, as soon as I started speaking to the microphone, I was very happy to be where I was. I realized I want to do this all the time. And I didn't want to be one of those storytellers who rolls out the same dozen or so chestnuts every night. You know, he, he's got 12 stories and they're all good, but he tells the same 12. Th those people exist. You probably have them at, you know, holidays. Your uncle comes and tells the same story every year. I didn't want to be that person. So Homework for Life was the desire to find more stories. And the recognition that as I began telling stories, I realized the big things that have happened in my life, sort of the ridiculous things that my friends knew about my life, and that's the reason they sent me to New York to tell a story, they turn out to be the more difficult stories to tell and actually the stories that people don't necessarily want to hear so much. They like to hear stories about sort of everyday moments that mean something to you. So Homework for Life was born from that desire. So basically every day, at the end of every day, I said to myself, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to find the most story-worthy moment from the day and I'm going to write it down. Not in any long-form way, simply in an Excel spreadsheet. You know, two columns, the date on the left-hand side and stretch the right column out and that's all I get to write it. So it becomes a habit. It's like brushing my teeth. It's not like something onerous, you know? And my goal was like 12 new stories per year, maybe one per month. But what I discover over the course of time is that our lives are just filled with stories, that there's tons of things that we can be talking about to audiences and to our friends and to our colleagues and to our students that we don't recognize because either we don't have an eye for it or more than likely we see it and then we let it go. You know, people say, time flies. And I now understand that time does not fly. Time goes unrecorded. And so if you don't remember a day, you know, that day doesn't happen. And so we have 365 days in a year, but if you can only remember 60 of them, of course time feels like it flies because you threw away 300, like they were meaningless. You didn't remember one single thing from that day. And when you don't remember one single thing, it's like the day didn't happen anymore. So that's why time flies because we just don't take a time to to say, all right, what's one thing that happened today that I might want to take note of? And so over time, I discovered my life is filled with them. I just did some analysis for the new book that's coming out 
When I wrote Storyworthy, I was averaging, I think, 1.8 moments per day in my homework for life. I was recording 1.8 moments. I now record 7.6 moments per day. And it's not because my life is more interesting. It's because I just have refined that lens over time so that I see things that I didn't see before. And I'm not a unicorn in any way. Thousands of people all over the world do homework for life now, and they all report the same as results. So as boring as you may think you are, uh, you have stories to tell and you just have to start finding them. So how do you actually teach your students to begin doing homework for life? Because I think as parents, it's one of the things that sounds so important, but we don't make time for. And we miss those really important, like something, you know, one of our children says, or just the way they look in a moment or something like that. And and those are gold, but like you say, we'd forget them. So what, what would you advise to actually begin this practice? Well, it doesn't take much. It simply takes the commitment to sit down at the end of every day and say, let's think about some things that happened today. Now, if I'm being honest, I don't sort of do it that way anymore. I do sit down at the, every, at the end of every day and say, all right, what haven't I collected already? But what I do now is I tend to collect throughout the day, either on my phone, on a computer that's sort of kind of always around me in some area. And then at the end of the day, I'll sit down and say, okay, what else did I not grab that I need to grab that happened over the course of the day? But you're right. Thank goodness I started doing homework for life when my kids were very little because I have a wealth of memories that parents just lose. You know, I meet people and their kids are graduating from high school. They're 18 and they say, my gosh, time went by so quickly. You know, I can't believe it. And I just keep thinking it doesn't go by quickly for me. Honestly, my kids feel 14 and 11 because every day of my life for their lives, I have been marking that time in some meaningful way. So I can look back and and think about things that have happened that would otherwise have been lost to me and now are held on forever. Matthew, are there any examples that you could share? Or Sure. Uh, today. How about today? <laughs> Just some things that have happened today already in my homework for life. My son right now is watching a soccer game. He's watching Manchester United versus someone. I had no idea that my son was a soccer fan. This was a, a new bit of information to me. We went for a walk and he said, I need to get home by three so I can watch the soccer game. And I said, what are you talking about? You don't watch soccer. He says, I do now. I said, how did you get into soccer, which is a sport that I hate to watch and to play in every way I hate this sport. And he said at chess club, the teacher plays soccer while we're playing chess after school. He puts on the soccer games from Europe And I've kind of fallen in love with soccer, and my team is Manchester United. And so that was a moment that happened today. I discovered, unfortunately, that my son is a huge soccer fan, and it's going to be a moment I always remember. I also cursed the teacher silently in my head, like, how dare you infect my son with this terrible sport? He calls it football, which is ridiculous, because tomorrow I'm going to be at a Patriots game at Gillette Stadium, and I'm going to be watching football but he's now calling soccer football, which I hate. So all of these terrible things have happened. And that's for Charlie. And that's one thing. For my daughter, Clara, we just we went on that same walk. We all went for a walk. And coming home, my son was ahead of us because he was on a scooter. So he's scootering ahead of Clara and myself. And Clara's talking to me about movies that she's recently seen. And she's kind of wondering why people make stupid movies. And I explained to her that a lot of times the movies that look stupid cost about $2 million to make and they earn $10 million. Like almost no one sees them, 
but they still make $10 million. So there's, you know, there's profit to be made. And she said, that's interesting. She said, you're right. I bet they make money even when they're stupid. And then she was talking about adaptations of movies. And she said, I hope someone adapts that movie someday. And I said, well, maybe you'll be the one to adapt it. And she stopped. She stopped walking on the sidewalk. It was like the first moment she realized, maybe I'll make a movie someday. You know, I saw it happen. She went, yeah, maybe I will. And then we continued to walk. I came home. It's what I wrote down. I stopped Clara in her tracks on the sidewalk by proposing the idea that someday she might make a movie. And may never happen, but I'll never forget the moment now. And, and it's those moments of transition that you talk about as well. Those are like those five second moments where you've, you've, you've changed in some right. way. That's almost like uh, one of the things to look for, yeah. isn't it? And with kids, they do it so often. As adults, we're a little more rigid. We're a little more established. Change doesn't happen perhaps quite as often. I think it kind of does if you're really attuned to it. But kids, it's just like sort of out there constantly. They're constantly, uh, you know, discovering the world or themselves or realizing something for the first time. And, and, or you're discovering something about them for the first time, realizing something that you had never discovered before. You just, those are the moments you don't want to ever lose. And people just throw them away like they're meaningless. Wow. And so transitions are one of the sort of, I guess the the cues for for recording a thought. What other cues are there for you now, Matt, when you're actually recording throughout the day these story for life moments? Well, anytime they say something that I want to hold on to forever, and kids say that stuff all the time, you know. So anytime my son or my daughter, especially my son, he says lots of crazy things, and so I hold on to those whenever I can. Uh, anytime I see my kids doing something for the first time, or I see them potentially doing it for the last time, or I realize they've done it for the last time, you know. I was just thinking today, it's in my homework for life. As we were getting ready to go for a walk, I said, do you want to go for a walk or a bike ride or a battle royale? And my son goes, battle royale. You know, I was kidding. But the thought went through my head that we used to have wrestling matches, the three of us on our bed, on my bed. And the goal was to throw each other off the bed. And it occurred to me, I probably haven't wrestled my kids on the bed in more than a year, which then makes me realize there was a time when I wrestled my kids for the last time and I didn't know it. And then I thought to myself, I got to wrestle my kids at least one more time on the bed so that I'm aware of the last time that we're going to wrestle on the bed, which it's going to be fine for Charlie because he and I kill each other all the time. But to get to my 14-year-old girl and get her on the bed and have her sort of wrestle with me, she's as big as me, all of this stuff goes through my head and then I go on and write it down that I may have wrestled on the bed. We play king of the bed. That's what we call it. The, we may have played king of the bed for the last time. And I don't remember the last time. Oh, yeah. So many of those last yeah. moments that just. Right. And life. first, you know, and, and best and worst yeah. are always good to look for, too. So the best time, the best time that a kid does something, the worst time a kid does something, those are great, too. Yeah, and that was an exercise that you outline in the book, isn't it? When you're actually looking for ideas to write stories, you can make a matrix of first, last, best, exactly. worst. Yeah, and then you give it a topic um, and um, away you go. Well, I actually did that first and, and I found that actually got me excited about starting to, because it, it's like stories beget stories. Right. And as soon as you think of something, it leads you down a rabbit hole and you're like, oh, yeah. And then you get start thinking about something else and it just brings up all sorts of, other ideas right. it's 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 i've only been doing it a week and i, I love and if it. you do it with someone else like you said stories beget stories so if you start doing it with your family you know your children will say something and that will re cause you to remember a time in your childhood 
that you can now share. You know, during our walk today, my daughter was talking about, for some reason, misbehaving kids. And she brought up a time, she knows the story of a time that I got in trouble in science class because I I opened up an eyewashed container when the substitute teacher was there and it created like a fountain in the room. I had no idea what was going to happen. And I got sent to the principal's office and suspended. She knows the whole story. And it's such a good feeling to walk next to your daughter and she's telling you a story that happened to you 40 years ago and she can speak it with such clarity because it means now she knows me. And that story is going to go on to her kids someday. You know, so although I have no intention of dying and I really can't acknowledge the prospect of death because it's too onerous for me to deal with, you know, (laughs) if I somehow disappear someday, like that story is now locked in with my daughter and that's the one I needed to be locked in with. So when you tell stories to your kids, you become known to your children. And that's when you can start teaching lessons from those stories because you can start talking about, you know, what did I do wrong that day? Or in the case of my children who are tragic rule followers, I might turn that story into a, like a, you know what? I got in a lot of trouble that day, but it doesn't matter today. Like it doesn't matter anymore. And it probably didn't matter a week after. And I did get to see the eyewash open, which everyone wanted to do. And I could have either gone through my life never knowing what it looked like to open up an eyewash bucket and have the fountain happen. You know, I could have gone never knowing that, or I could have done it, gotten in some trouble and had the satisfaction of awareness, which is what I want from my kids because they're rule followers. I want them to start understanding that you can break a rule when it's important, you know, when it means something. So all of those stories then become lessons if you allow them to. Yeah. And I suppose saying a tragic rule follower, so many of the rules actually stimmy that sort of curiosity in children, don't they? I mean, how, how are your classes different then, do you think? Well, I mean, it depends on the kids. You know, I have kids who are tragic, not rule followers. Some of my students that need to learn how to follow the rules. But there is a lot of anxiety these days with kids and a lot of um, aversion to risk. You know, I, I often shout into my classroom and to my own children, embrace uncertainty because they constantly want to know like what's next. And I'm like, I'm not going to tell you what's next. You know, we'll see what's next. I like surprise. Don't you like suspense? They all hate it. They all hate suspense and surprise these days, <laughs> but too bad. Like suspense and surprise are critical to storytelling. And I think they're critical to an enjoyable, happy life. So, you know, it depends on the child, but if there is a moment where, uh, you know, where my tragic rule-following children dare to break a rule, it becomes a story immediately, you know, and it's a story I retell and retell, and I emphasize the benefits of it. There was actually a time when we were visiting my Boy Scout camp, my old Boy Scout camp, and it was lunchtime, and I wanted to take the kids up to the tower at the waterfront, because there was binoculars, like, sort of on a stand, and you could see the whole pond, you know, where I spent my childhood. But there was a rope closing off the the tower, just one rope on a little hook, no lock, just a rope. And there was no one down there because they were all at lunch. And I said, let's go up to the tower. And Charlie said, well, we can't, it's, it's blocked off. And I said, we're going to let a rope stand in front, stand in our way of going to the top <laughs> of the tower. And he would have, but I put the rope down and I went up and he wouldn't go up at first. And I got to the top and I said, wow, the view up here is incredible. And finally he made his way up. I talked to him about that story all the time. I say, this is another one of those rope and tower situations, Charlie. Like, this is the kind of situation where we're not going to let something stand in our way if we want to do something that's meaningful. We're not hurting anybody by going up the tower. There's so many times in life when we're not hurting someone while we're breaking a rule, while we're, you know, moving beyond the expectation of someone else in this world. So 
telling him that story over and over again, it becomes sort of a a bell that I can ring again and again for him, and hopefully it starts to um, ring in his own mind without me constantly banging away at it. And we actually learn through stories, don't we? I mean, it's actually a, an amazing vehicle for for imparting sort of lessons. Yeah, anyway. well, we're wired to do that. You know, before we could write for almost all of human history, like 99.9% of human history, we couldn't write. We didn't have printed language. And the only way we survived as a species was to be able to tell stories because we remember stories more than anything else. So the way we learned not to eat a berry off a particular bush was we told a story about how Uncle Joe died eating the berry off that bush, so we shall not eat the berries. And that's the only way we transferred information from one generation to another was oral storytelling because we just had no means of otherwise recording it. So our brains are wired to remember story, which is why you can remember a hundred movies that you've seen with enormous clarity and you can recite the, the lines, the dialogue to tons of movies that you love with great clarity, but you can't remember sort of any kind of a lecture with any clarity because a lecture doesn't have plot and setting and characters and suspense and surprise. It doesn't have any of those things. So those things are all utterly forgettable, but stories, they stay with us forever. Yeah. And how would you suggest to start thinking? Obviously, just reading the book, Storyworthy, will take you through that. But do you have like a quick sort of checklist when you're thinking, oh, how can I, how can I explain to these guys what something here? Is that something you can do on the, on the hop now? Or is it something that you put in the vault for like, I'll do that next week and think about it in the meantime. Do you mean taking a story and turning it into a lesson or just turning it into a story? The other way around. There's something I have to actually explain here. Like actually, how do I turn that into right. a story or, or think of something that I've done that would actually help explain that? Well, better. if you start doing homework for life, you're never looking for a story that can help explain something. It's the easiest thing for me. There's companies now that actually call me just to ask me for a story to apply to their product or their service that they're rolling out. They say like, we need a metaphor. There's actually a company that calls me Metaphor Man. They call me up and they say, we're adding a boring feature to our boring platform and we need a story to attach to it to make people understand it. Could you tell us what the story should be? They think I'm generating metaphors, but all I'm really doing is coming up with a personal story and I'm removing myself from the story and just creating sort of a universal metaphor based upon my life that they then apply to their product. So if you're doing homework for life, you end up being the person who has the most stories to tell. And so you're never wanting for a story to apply to a lesson that you need to teach. You know, it becomes a very simple process. Sometimes I'll have a story and I'll say, what am I going to do with this story in particular? You know, and in that way, I always think about theme, meaning, and message, which means what's the theme of the story? What's the meaning of the story? And what could the message be? Oftentimes people think content. They try to match content to content. So if you're trying to teach a kid not to walk out on thin ice, right, they're often thinking, let me think of a thin ice story. And I say, no, that's the worst way to do it, right? It's much better to find a story that talks about walking into a hazardous situation that you should not walk into, like theme, meaning, and message. So I would immediately go, well, when's a time in my life when I entered a situation that I should not have entered and it didn't work out well for me? I'll tell that story. And then I'll say the ice is just like that moment that I experienced in my life. They're both the same, right? And that is more meaningful to people because those that connection between those two moments is that like, I always think of it as a snapping into place of meaning for people. Like, wow, he was talking about this, but actually he was talking about that. That snap is so powerful for people. I call it speaking with adjacency. 
which means I'm going to speak about something, but I'm not actually going to speak about it for a little bit. I'm going to trick you, entertain you, make you think that you're in the midst of some enjoyable story. And then I'm going to say, no, we were not in the midst of an enjoyable story. I was actually teaching you something (laughs) at the same time that you were enjoying it. So get a lot of stories so that you always have an example and then think in terms of theme, meaning, and message. Yeah, (laughs) that's great because some of the best ways to learn are connecting a new thing to something you already exactly. exist, uh, already understand, like Richard Feynman would do famously in his Feynman right. technique. Um, one of the ways that you, uh, I really loved as well that we're going to start doing is the 30 photos on the fridge. Oh, um, yeah. With your kids. Oh, that's in my book. Can you explain that? I, I put that in my book. Ah, uh, no, it's a conversation. Okay. Yeah. No, I, I didn't even know I had talked about that before, but I'm sure I have. So um, <laughs> once every couple months, probably. I just put some new ones up, actually. So once every couple months, I order photos that I've, we've been taking over the last two months. I go through all of our photos, and I order about 30 photos. And then I always do it as a surprise, because suspense and surprise are powerful. So I get up in the morning, and before my kids come down, I take down all the photos that are on the fridge and on a board right behind where they eat. There's a magnetic board, so two places in the kitchen. And I replace them with the pictures from the last two months. And so they come down and they're so excited because they see all these photos, many of them they've never seen before because I take a picture, but you know they don't always ask me to see the picture. So their pictures they're seeing for the first time. And suddenly for the next month or two, we have prompts for stories that we can then begin to tell. So you know Charlie will look and say, is that from my last baseball game? And I'll say, yeah, that's the last little league game you played. Do you remember what happened? And now we're telling a story about it. And we're also cementing the memory. So it's not going to be lost to him or it's going to be less likely to be lost to him. So I'm just trying to sort of inundate my family with prompts so that we can retell the stories that we have been experiencing over time and allow them to remember those moments and tell their own stories about them. But I think it's also magic in the sense that they can see that you paid attention when they might not have thought you paid attention as well. Which is amazing because it shows that, you know, you were present in that moment. Yeah. I, you know, I, it's funny because I don't think my kids have ever wondered if I was paying attention, but just because it's me, you know, I've written a blog post every single day of my life for the last 19 years. And oftentimes it's about my children. And so my daughter reads my blog daily and my son occasionally dips into it. So my daughter knows that, you know, at once a week, she's probably mentioned on my blog in some way. And for the first eight years of my kids' lives, I actually wrote to them every single day. They didn't see any of it, but I was writing to them every day. And that eventually got produced into books, into these big, six beautiful books that sit in our kitchen that the kids flip through all the time. And there's like, here's a story from when you were nine days old. Here's a story from when you were two months old. Here's a story when you were three years old. And so my kids sort of understand, I think, that I have been watching them closely and paying attention to them constantly. But it's a good point. Like if you're not in that weird position I am where my kids are constantly the source of my stories and my writing and I'm constantly writing to them, then I think um, it's a good point. I also actually send letters to my kids quite often. I send them in the mail to them. So when the mail arrives, they get a letter in the mail from me. Oftentimes they get it before I come home from work. So they've opened up a letter from dad while dad wasn't in the house. And that always means a lot to them too. And it's always a story about, I saw you do this thing and I thought it was amazing and I just wanted to make sure you knew. To create a physical object of it. I know my daughter saves those those letters. I don't think my son does because he's a monster, but he knows that he's getting them and he loves getting them. Yeah, I, 
And there's nothing nicer, I think, than receiving a letter. It just says that this person cares so deeply about you that they put pen to paper. I mean, you could spend the same amount of time crafting an email, you know, editing it to make it really nice, and it just wouldn't come across. Right. Whereas actually, the physical paper. Yeah. So. I mail letters to my <laughs> students, my own students, all the time, too. They can't believe it the first time they get a letter. Every one of my kids in my class, I've got 22 this year, they've all received at least a couple letters from me over the course of the year. And uh, they come in, and sometimes they whisper to me. They go like, I got a letter from you in the mail. And I, and I say, like, I know. I'm the one who sent it. You know? And I send letters <laughs> to my previous students. I, I hold on to their addresses. So, you know, halfway through their sixth grade year, I start sending letters to my previous students saying, like, I know halfway through your next year, I hope it's going well. If it's not, let me know. I'd love to help. And when they get to eighth grade and they're getting ready to go on to high school, I'll mail letters to those kids again and just say, I know you're getting ready to graduate. Just want you to know I'm still thinking about you. Uh, and all of those things mean a lot to the kids. And it means a lot to the parents, frankly, too, because, you know, if they see a letter coming in from a teacher and it's addressed to the kid at first, they're like always a little worried, like, what the hell is this? But then they find out what it is, and they're very happy to see it. Yeah, that's fantastic, man. And it takes no I time. If you set up a little system, like right here, where, where I'm sitting right now, there's a stack of envelopes, right? So I always have a stack of envelopes and a stack of cards, and I always have some stamps, and I know what my kids' addresses are because I have a sheet with all their addresses. So, you know, while you were trying to get your uh, computer to work so that we record this, I almost reached and said, well, I'll write a card while I'm waiting. You know, I decided I probably don't have enough time because I'm going to click on in a minute and we'll be back together. But if you had said, come back in five minutes, I probably would have written a letter or two to my students and had them going off by Monday so that they could have been on the way. So it's not like an onerous task. It's not hard to do. It's just you have to set up a little system where you can immediately grab that three minutes that you waste staring at your phone. You know, instead of staring at your phone, Send a letter to your own child. To your, I send mail. I send mail to my wife at her place of business, so she gets mail from me at her work at her school. She's a kindergarten teacher, letting her know I'm thinking about her and telling her usually something that I saw her do, telling a story about her to her that means something to me. So it doesn't take much. People think it sounds crazy, but it doesn't take much. I don't think it sounds crazy at all. I think it sounds awesome and. That was uh, something that I've come across recently, so talking about, you know, as a couple, it's so easy to not give your wife compliments enough and, you know, just assume that she knows that you care so much about it. But to actually, again, write a letter and send it to a place of work, that's like just. And it doesn't take much, though. Like you get a lot of credit for doing very little, which is also, I, I believe, in optimizing whenever possible. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> do, do you have any other sort of thoughts for like lessons in parenting that, that you've taken from others? In terms of storytelling? In terms of parenting, like stories that you've, you've experienced from others that sure. have like, changed something well, in you. You know, one of the things that I've sort of been keenly aware of watching parents is the longer that you can hold back technology from children, the better off they're going to be. And that's a really hard thing for parents to understand. I don't know if it's correlation or causation, but I can tell you that every single year, my most effective fifth grade students, 10-year-olds, do not have phones. Now, that might be those are highly effective parents who are also not allowing 10-year-olds to have telephones, you know, cell phones yet. So maybe that is the reason. 
but I can tell you that they're happier kids. My children are 14 and 11. Neither one of them has a cell phone. My daughter's probably the only kid in her high school who doesn't have a cell phone. And when I tried to give her one, when she became a freshman in high school, she said she didn't want one. She said, I don't need that drama. So at my desk, we actually have a third phone in our house now. We bought her this phone and she said, I don't want it. And so we had the third phone and we said, all right, well, it's going to become sort of the third phone that a kid can use if they need a phone. So when she went to homecoming, the dance, and she wanted to take pictures, take the phone with you. You know, if my son Charlie has Little League practice and we don't know if it's going to end at 7.30 or 8.30 because the coach isn't sure either, we give him the phone and say, okay, now you have the phone. Call us when Little League is over. But when he comes home, he doesn't keep the phone. It sits right here on my desk and it only gets picked up when it is needed as an actual communication device, not a social media device, not a texting with your friends device, those kinds of things. You know, part of it was I'm just aware of the problems that it brings into children's lives, but I'm keenly aware that the kids in my class who do not have phones at the age of 10 are more effective in terms of being kinder, gentler, more effective learners. So that is a lesson I've taken from parents quite a bit is that there's nothing wrong with your child being a little less popular at school and a little happier. Those two things, it's often, as my daughter will tell you, the most popular kids in her high school seem to be the least happy kids because they're constantly embroiled in nonsense. Whereas she and her friends, who tend to be kids who are off, you know, off the internet in that way, at least, they tend to be happier kids. Wow. Yeah, that's such an important thing. It's to hard. Yeah. Be deliberate with these right. days. You know, the other thing that we do that I love is in almost every case in our home, no one is ever watching anything alone when it comes to sort of movies and television. You know, my children don't watch their own movies and TV. We all watch them as family. So whenever there's a movie going on, either the whole family is gathering to watch a movie or in the case of like my daughter and I, she's watching horror movies now and my wife and son won't watch them. So she and I will sit down and watch a horror movie together. And because of that, and television's the same way, because of that, we always have something to talk about at the end of the movie. It's not sort of an isolating experience. What happens so often in the world today is, you know, a family of four, each one of them are sort of in their own corner of the house. And someone's watching a baking show in one corner, another one's watching a superhero movie in the other corner, and someone's watching a comedy special, and then, you know, someone else is watching a cartoon. And that's a very isolating experience for all four of the people in the house. So we have to sort of, as a family, come together, or at least as a partnership, you got to find someone in the house who will watch something with you. And then at least, though, it's a conversation. So my family, my children and I are watching The Simpsons together. We started at episode one, season one. We're only into like episode like 20, season eight, <laughs> something like that. Yeah, there's a lot. But we can't watch an episode of The Simpsons unless all three of us are together. You can go back and rewatch a Simpsons that we've already watched, which my daughter does because she's insane about comedy and she's studying them. And, you know, she really loves to like analyze and find the things we didn't see the first time. That's all fine. But whenever we're advancing to a new one, all three of us must be present. If you make that sort of as a, guiding principle in your home, the isolation that children tend to feel as they get older will reduce significantly because they won't be alone watching something on their own, being confused about something, you know, or being impacted in a way that you don't know about as a parent because someone is always going to be present watching it. 
even if it's occasionally my daughter and my son will watch something together. They have a cartoon they watch together. I don't know. I can't remember what it's called, but I know they're watching it together. No one is sort of in their room watching something on their own. I think that's an important thing. Yeah. And I mean, the other positive is that they sort of broaden their horizon as well. Like they don't go down a rabbit warren of a particular genre or something and become so sort of monofocused on on that thing and surrounded by that little echo chamber of all the things associated with that. They're introduced to, you know, the cooking shows and the travel show and all this extra stuff that right, the, exactly. an algorithm wouldn't feed them. Yeah. And if you're clever about what you choose, you really can expose your kids to some great stuff. Actually, The Simpsons has been amazing because The Simpsons is like a 26 minute show. And it takes us about 45 minutes to watch an episode because there's so much history in it. You know, there'll be a reference to Richard Nixon. And my son will be like, who's Richard Nixon? So we pause and I give him a 10 minute talk on who Richard Nixon was. <laughs> and, I, and then I say, okay, you got it? And he goes, okay, good. And then I hit play. But nine minutes later, they make a reference to, I don't know, some movie or some book or yeah, something. And they go, what's that? X-Files and so pause yeah. a history lesson. I actually want to teach a history class in high school where all we do is watch The Simpsons and I teach the history that is being presented in The Simpsons through pop culture and historical references. And I think it would be enormously valuable because my kids are getting a ton of it uh, through The Simpsons. So if you're clever, you know, and you, you choose good quality content, you know, it, it can really be meaningful. And, and the, the maker of uh, The Simpsons, Matt Greeny, he has such a, a really great lens on sort of what's going on at the time. So to view it, like the media outlets would not report what was going on in that sort of right. way. Even things like Aerosmith appears, appears on The Simpsons, you know? And they'll say, who's Aerosmith? And I'll say, it's a band, you know, from Boston. Loved them. Here's some songs that you might know. But then in the car, two days later, I'm playing Aerosmith for them. And, I'm, and then I say, here's Aerosmith. This is the band. And for two days, we listen to Aerosmith in the car. And they get exposure to that band. And maybe they find a song they love and it enters our family playlist, which we listen to when we go on long car rides. And now they have an Aerosmith connection. You know, so just being deliberate about these things with your kids. And it's not, it's not difficult. It's not challenging. It's simple and fun. And making sure that your kids have a wide range of understanding of the world which I don't find a lot of my students have. You know, I have many of my 10-year-old students who can't tell me that the world is made of atoms. You know, my son, I think, knew that at like seven. He knew that, oh, the world is made of atoms. Like he now understands subatomic particles only because he's interested in it. And I make sure he has opportunities to explore those things. You know, I tell my son, none of my class knows about atoms. He goes, boy, they're all idiots. And I'm like, don't call them idiots. It's just that they lack exposure for whatever reason. You know, probably because, like you said, what they're watching, what they're consuming is basically what they determine, and they don't make good choices. It's not surprising that if you allow a 10-year-old to watch whatever the hell they want to watch, nothing good will come of that, or very few things will come good of that. You have to be a curator for kids to help them, like, figure out what is good and what is not. And that doesn't mean that my kids are watching documentaries all the time. They watch Stranger Things. The whole family get together and watch Stranger Things, you know? Uh, there's not a lot of, you know, there's not a lot of like historical significance to Stranger Things, but boy, we all enjoyed it, you know, and we we talk about it all the time and we can't wait for the next season. It's a family thing we did. So, you know, it doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be a documentary, but it can be something you all get together and do as a family. Yeah. What are the 
deliberate things have you set up? Uh, well, one of the things we do is we, we just, we engage in a lot of storytelling purposefully. You know, I play three, two, one with my kids all the time, that storytelling game, and my kids love it. Uh, three, two, one is an improv game. So um, the three stands for three prompts, three tangible non-proper nouns. Actually, let's play three, two, one right now. So you give me right now three tangible non-proper nouns, anything that comes to mind. Three, bath, ball. Tree, bath, and ball. So that's the three. The two is, I am now required to tell you a story about one of those objects, a true story from my life, that involves one of those objects in a fairly significant way. And I have about two minutes to tell you. I could just talk about it for 10 seconds, and that's also acceptable, but I can go up to two minutes. And I have one minute to think about it, only one minute. And that way the stakes are really lowered. We're not looking for outstanding performance. We're looking for you to mine your life really quickly, look through the lens of trees, look through the lens of bath, and look through the lens of ball, and find a story that can have some meaning that I can now share with you. So you've actually given me three very easy prompts to work with. In my family, my children would never do that. They would give me confetti, potpourri, and a dirty <laughs> sock, and they'd say, good luck, Dad. And, and it would work. It, the idea of the game is that... <laughs> If I was asked to tell a story about love, it's hard for me to find a new story about love because the net is so large, I can't help but capture all the love stories I've told before. You know, if you ask me to tell a story about friendship, I've got the same problem. But if you ask me to tell the story through the lens of confetti, you've essentially said, take a laser pointer through your life and just look through the lens of confetti and find a moment when you encountered confetti in a way that you can share it with us. And it doesn't have to be a great story. It just has to be, hey, here was a time when such and such happened, right? So by playing this game, I learned so many things about my kids, and my kids learned so many things about me, and they learned things I would never think of telling them. I teach this game in my workshops, and I had a mother once tell me, she said, I used to drive around and listen to music with my son. And now from the backseat, he just shouts three nouns at me, and I have to constantly tell him stories on the way to soccer practice and school and all these other things. And she said, I kind of hate it because I miss the music. But she said, I've told him more about my life than I ever would have told him had I, had I not played this game with him. So, so I'll use the tree one. Yeah. Uh, Clara is about five years old and she's sitting on the stoop with her brother who was three and she's telling Charlie a story. She's pointing at a spot in the grass and she's talking about Sarah. Sarah was a tree that used to live in the front lawn of our home. We have two trees. We had Sarah and Emma. Clara named both of them. And when Clara was about four years old and Charlie was about two, Sarah got diseased. And Sarah got sick and Sarah died. And a tree company had to come and remove Sarah from the ground. And so they took Sarah away and left a brown patch that eventually got filled with grass. Clara's telling Charlie all of this. And then Clara gets off the stoop and walks over to the spot where Sarah once was, a spot you can't identify anymore because it's just grass, and she begins walking in circles, and she talks about how much she loved to sit under Sarah and read books, and how much she misses Sarah, and how she wishes Charlie could remember Sarah the way she could. Right. So that was a, that's a story that just came back to me because you gave me tree. Now, it's probably in my homework for life. I could probably go back and find that moment because I remember it happening and I'm like, wow, that was a moment. But that's what would happen. If Clara gave me the tree prompt, I'd give her that. And then she would either go, I remember that, 
And she'd say, wow, I don't remember that, but now she has it. And so we play that game all the time. We play, my kids love it more than my wife. My kids would play it at dinner every night. My wife is like, enough of three, two, one. Can we just have a regular standard conversation? And I get that totally. <laughs> but we're driving around in the car. Charlie will say, hey, let's play three, two, one. Each one of us, you know, we just played, play, we just played it recently. And um, Charlie got window is one of the words. And he told a story about how when he was like seven or eight, he was making a video with his iPad. You know, he makes videos and takes pictures with it. And he said he wanted a picture of something that was outside. And he brought the, he brought the iPad up to the window, but the screen was there blocking, you know? So he had lifted the screen up to get a picture and then he couldn't get the screen down. And he thought the screen was broken because of it. He thought he had broken the screen. So he closed the window and didn't want to tell us because he was afraid he had just broken the screen on the brand new windows we have, right? So he went through like this, this panic for like two days, staring at this window, waiting for us to discover the screen was broken. And then finally, he went onto YouTube to see if he could like figure out how to fix it. And on YouTube, he found a video that showed that you just have to push the two things in and it'll come down. And he went and he did it and everything was fine. I didn't know any of that happened. Like I didn't know he was going through that torment and he was using <laughs> YouTube to solve his problems. You know, all of that came out because we played three, two, one. And I said, you never told me that. And he said, well, I didn't want to tell you because I thought I was in trouble. And then I solved the problem. And I wasn't going to tell you I thought I was in trouble, but I solved the problem. So three years later, he shared it with us. You get that all the time when you play this game. Wow. Are there any other games that you play? Well, we play first, last, best, worst with the kids as well. And then I play a game called Where Oh Where. How do you play that? Like, how do you set that up? It's, oh. Because it, it wouldn't be, it's not like you're looking for, you know, creating stories. Yeah, well, no, we are. Oh, yeah, okay, no, we okay. play it just like that. So we'll either use a prompt or we'll use an online um, online random random generator. There's a My favorite one is it's a website called perchance.org slash object. So if I was to go to that right now, um, we would we were playing three, if we were playing three, two, one, I'd say, all right, guys, let's play three, two, one. I'm going to go to perchance.org slash object. Comes right up for me. And I hit randomize and I get harmonica. So that means, oh, harmonica is great for me, actually. So that means I have to tell you a story about either the first time I used a harmonica, the last time I used a harmonica, my best experience with harmonica, or my worst experience with a harmonica. That's my job. And I got to tell my family or tell a workshop or tell the world, because sometimes I actually do this on a stage in front of 500 people. I got to tell you a story about a harmonica, first, last, best, and worst. And I can think of not my first harmonica, but I can think of my last one. And I can definitely remember the best harmonica story. And actually, I can kind of remember a worst harmonica story. But the best harmonica story, what just happened this summer, my son Charlie bought a harmonica at the Alcatraz Museum on the island of Alcatraz. He bought a harmonica and we left the gift shop and he was sitting like in this prison courtyard on a bench and he was playing the harmonica for the very first time. Now he plays the guitar and the trumpet, so he has some sense of music. It wasn't, it wasn't like good harmonica playing, but it definitely had rhythm and beat and things. So he's playing the harmonica in this family, this international family, an Asian family from some Asian country, walked over to him and started listening to him. And he stopped playing and they went, oh no, could you keep playing? We've never heard the harmonica played. They thought he was an expert harmonica player, even though he'd been playing for about 14 seconds. It was the first 14 <laughs> seconds of his life playing a harmonica. And yet he had already gathered an audience. And if he'd taken his hat off and put it on the ground, he probably would have made money. 
<laughs> and I watched it all happen. And I thought, yeah. this is crazy, yeah. right? So that is the best harmonica. But you can do it for everything. Everyone can tell a story of the first, last, best, or worst. It doesn't have to be a good story. though. That was a good one. But it could have just been my worst harmonica story, which was I lost my father's harmonica when I was a kid. And it was lost for like three hours. And he was really mad because he had given it to me and I had misplaced it and I couldn't find it. And then we eventually found it. That would, that'd be all that I would say. But that's still good enough. It, it, it's enough to know, oh, there was a harmonica in my childhood home. My father played the harmonica. I lost it. I got in trouble. Then I was out of trouble. That'd be enough for my kids. They'd be happy with that. They'd say, okay, that's great. That's, <laughs> that's all you have to do. But occasionally you stumble upon a good story. Are, are they a tough audience? My kids? No. No, they, they really are not. Because anytime, I, I don't think actually any kids are tough audiences because I don't think parents share enough of their lives with their children. And anytime you share anything with your kids, they're pretty excited to hear about like what your childhood was like. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting you say that because I, I'm constantly aware that I'd probably tell the same stories over and over because I don't know which child I've told it to because you know, you've told it once, like, Did I, have I told this to Ali and Will yet? I know I've told it to Annie. And, and I, I'm sort of very cautious of that, but. No, don't be because kids love to hear stories many times. I mean, as a parent, I'm sure you've read the same picture book to your children hundreds of times and they want to hear it times. again. Yeah, I have stories true. that, I have a story about like from kindergarten that my kids ask me for all the time. And I say, really, we have to do John Fox in the bathroom again? Like I've told <laughs> it to you 20 times. They're like, tell it again. We love it so much. Kids love to hear <laughs> stories again and again. In fact, there's a lot of science behind it. Uh, as an author, a novelist, I'll tell you that more than half the readers in the world, I think this is kind of crazy, they read the last chapter before they start reading a book because it reduces anxiety and allows you to hear the story better. And there's a lot of research that shows that the second time you watch a movie, it's more entertaining than the first time because it reduces anxiety. You're not worried for the character throughout the whole movie. You now know what's going to happen and you can enjoy it more. I am not one of those people. I hate, <laughs> I hate the surprise being ruined. I love the first experience of something. But for many people, that is not the case. And so kids love to hear stories a second time because now they can sort of like pay better attention and not be like concerned about the safety or the well-being of people in the story. Yeah, but I mean, you must also hate the the, the normal narrative arc of stories because you know the way it's set up at the start is going to be completely opposite at the end, isn't it? So Yes, I always, I often know the ending of the story, not with precision, but you know, in the where it's going to land, sort of what planet it's going to land on. But that doesn't mean it's ruined for me if they get there in an interesting way. There's a lot of romantic comedies, for example. In romantic comedy, we know they're going to get together at the end of the movie. That is the point of the movie. <laughs> Harry and Sally are getting together at the end of the movie. Yeah. But if it's done in a beautiful, clever, and surprising way, I'm all good with that. You know, it's part of the struggle with things like superhero movies these days. We know the superheroes are going to win. Like Spider-Man is not going to die at the end of the movie. It's just not going to happen, right? So that's why uh, a show like The Last of Us or a show like The Walking Dead or um, Game of Thrones, those are really compelling to people because people just died in those movies who you couldn't believe yeah. died, yeah. right? So there was enormous amount of uncertainty. Whereas if you're watching a Marvel movie, there's not that much uncertainty. You know, we pretty much know what's going to happen. There are moments, you know, there are moments where I'm like, wow, they're going to kill Black Widow here. Really? They're going to kill her. I can't believe it. They're going to kill her. Now, of course, they're going to come back with a Black Widow prequel. So she's basically being brought back to life for us anyway. Um, but it doesn't often happen that way. It's often the ending is really predetermined in sort of a superhero movie 
which is what makes movies like uh, we just watched The Sixth Sense with my my daughter and I just watched it. Yeah, yeah. you know, and I talked about it two days ago. People like like we remember that movie because the ending was so surprising to us. In fact, when it ended this time, (laughs) I watched my daughter. I didn't watch the movie. I knew that she was about to find out the truth of the movie, and I watched her. And I watched her reaction. It's in my homework for life. I will never forget watching my daughter come to realize what the end of the sixth sense is. And I have I a whole bunch of movies. I get goosebumps when you just said that. Yeah. yeah. I, the same thing is going to happen when we watch Fight Club. The same thing is going to happen when we watch Memento. There's, there's all these movies that sort of at the end, the ending is so surprising. Those why those movies hold on in a way that some don't. You know, I, I don't know if I'll ever watch Seven with her. But if I do and yeah. she find out what's in the box, you know, <laughs> I don't know if I'll be able to go through that one with her. Um, but those movies are important because we don't see the ending of those stories. So you're right, though. I do see the endings of most. Do you, uh, what are the, I guess, what are the rookie errors that we make as storytellers? Because I think you talk about surprise and, and sometimes we try to, to, to put the surprise to you know, the, the important thing too early and not finish with it or something like that. What, what advice do you have around when you, you're actually trying to you know, come up with a good story or tell a, an important story to you in a way that really works better? Well, I'll give, you, um, I'll give you three things. First, this is an easy one. It's going to change everything for you as a storyteller. You begin every story with location and action. You give it a place because that activates imagination. It's also a signal you're telling a story. If you say, I'm walking through a forest, people understand you're telling a story now and they get quiet. This is really important for people who are marginalized, who have a hard time making space for people to hear them. You know, for me, as a white, straight American man, I have never had a problem sort of forcing myself into every situation and blathering away as much as I want. But if you're a woman or a minority or anyone who's marginalized, you have a hard time sometimes getting people to listen. And one of the ways to get people to listen is to indicate you're telling a story. So if you say, I'm walking through a forest, it's an indication you're telling a story, but walking through a forest instantly evokes in your mind a picture. And that's what storytelling is about. It's creating a picture. So you open with a setting, right? Even with the Clara story with Charlie, Clara is sitting next to Charlie on a stoop. The action there is sitting, which is not much, but they're doing something. You can so, picture it in your head. And you can picture it in your head. Most people don't start stories with that. They start things like, I have a daughter named Clara, and she's seven at the time. And I have a son named Charlie, and he's four at the time. And Clara's really precocious, and Charlie's, you know, and that's not a story. That's just an essay about my children, which no one has ever wanted in the history of the world. So <laughs> we have to start stories with location and action, because that's actually the way to get the movie running in the mind. And then in terms of surprise, which I think is the most delightful thing we can offer an audience, the trick is simple. It's when you are surprised, that's when the audience should be surprised. Most people preload the surprise because they're so afraid they're not going to hold the audience's attention. They want to like throw out all the good stuff right away. But just think about like Spielberg's Jaws. Like we don't see the shark until like minute 38, right? Spielberg doesn't even show you the shark, but it's the absence of the shark that keeps us watching and wondering what the shark will look like. If he had showed us the shark in the first scene of the movie, suddenly all the surprise is gone. So we have to make sure that when we're surprised, that is the moment the audience should be surprised. And it's as simple as that. The tricky part is, after you've been surprised, it's sometimes hard to remember having been surprised. So you have to really think back on the story and go, it was surprising to me when Clara told Charlie about Sarah. And it was really surprising to me when she got up and started walking in circles in the place the tree used to be. You know, So those would be moments where 
I wouldn't start the story by saying, I remember the day that Clara told Charlie about the dead tree. Because that means I just told you the story. Like, I, I have some other things to say, but they're useless at this point because I've just essentially told you the story. But that's how people often start stories. They often want to begin with the good stuff. So don't begin with the good stuff. Begin with location and action, and then just take us through step by step. Yeah. I love it. That's fantastic, Matt. <laughs> that's gold. Okay. Well, I, I can't recommend that people read Storyworthy enough. Like, it is literally got me excited to start recording more. And I just want to say a massive thank you to you for that, because I've been looking for books like this for years and, and I've tried reading a, a fair few, but they all got too academic and too, I don't know, I just couldn't take anything away that I could actually action. And yours is the most actionable and helpful book I've read so far. And it's brilliant. It's so good. I'm really glad. Thank you. I, Honestly, I think the, the only reason I'm good at what I do is because I've been an elementary school teacher for 25 years. So I understand how to take large, complex processes and break them down into small, repeatable, practicable parts. You know, it's essentially long division. I get to teach 10-year-olds how to do long division. There's many steps involved. Storytelling is the same way. You know, the only advantage that storytelling has over long division is you don't have to use all of my strategies and you can still tell a great story, right? In long division, if you make one mistake, the answer will be wrong and you will not get any credit. But in storytelling, if all you do is start with action and you leave out location, your story's still gonna be better than it was a minute ago, right? So as you read Storyworthy, you know, it's chock full of strategies, but you can take six of them and be a significantly better storyteller with just six of them rather than the hundred. So you can sort of build on slowly, but people are such bad storytellers in the world that it does not take much for you to quickly rise in the ranks and people will start to think of you as, wow, he's a really good storyteller with very little with very little effort because most people don't tend to think about what they're going to say. They just say it without sort of being a little strategic before they open their mouths. Wow, that's a, a great takeaway just there. <laughs> so I think a lot of politicians should probably be a bit more like that too. <laughs> <laughs> I work with politicians. <laughs> yes. Well, storytelling is nothing but decision making. It does not even your facility with your language, your vocabulary, all of that is irrelevant. It is storytellers are people who make decisions before they open their mouths and they make the best decisions possible. And the best storytellers are the ones who make Love the best it. decisions. Matt, I've got to leave it there because I know you're a busy guy, but this has been brilliant. I've, I've taken so much more from this than I even expected because I've already read your book. But um, thank you so much for taking the time today. And um, yeah, as soon as you have any more books coming out, <laughs> let us know. Uh, June 12th. I have a storytelling for business book coming out on June 12th. And if they just, uh, if you just go to matthewdix.com, you can sort of track all the things there. That's going to be exciting because we don't need any more bad presentations in the world. Well, sadly, there's going to be many, many more bad presentations in the world because I can count the number of excellent presentations I have seen in my life probably on two hands. Um, but it's also easily fixable. So um, I tried to do that in that book. Oh, awesome. Well, I can't wait. Thanks, Matt. This has uh, been so, so good. And uh, I'm really excited for, for June. All right. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for listening. If this conversation has inspired you to get better at storytelling, I can wholeheartedly recommend Matthew's book, Storyworthy. It's amazing. Just do yourself a favor, treat yourself. 
I'll put links to the book and some of Matthew's other work in the show notes at thedadmindset.com. If this episode has resonated with you and you haven't already, the thing that you can do to help the most is to subscribe to the podcast on Apple or Spotify. Sharing the show or your favourite episode with friends is of course awesome and really helpful. Well, that's about all from me for now. I hope you have a great week and as always, enjoy your caffeinated beverage.